We're here to get each other through this thing. Whatever it is. Kurt Vonnegut. Everyone, welcome, welcome, welcome. We have another episode of Felonious Pundits for you. We are your Felonious Pundits. I'm Kintad Svinsgaard, and along with me, please say hello, as always, to Mr. A.J. Mass. That is me, the grizzled veteran A.J. Mass, uh, a Felonious Pundit in my own right, I suppose. Indeed, indeed, indeedy. Yes, so this is Felonious Pundits, a podcast about the television program Criminal Minds. Each week, we take a look at and uh, I would say an in-depth look at, AJ, an episode of the show each week. Some might even say an in-death look, <laughs> based on the subject matter of these episodes, usually. Oh, I will refrain from groaning, although that is my instinct right now. But I have empathy, so I am going to just smile and laugh. AJ, this week we're taking a look at Season 2, Episode 16 of Criminal Minds, entitled Fear and Loathing. This episode was not written by Hunter S. Thompson. No, it was written by Aaron Zellman and directed by one Rob Spira. It originally aired on Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2007. Wow, I hadn't really realized that. This is far from the most romantic episode that you will find. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Uh, so let's get into it, shall we? We shall. Although I will, I will note that there is an out of order airing of this. That this episode was originally scheduled to uh, run before the Super Bowl uh, episode, and then oh. they kind of held it off till after. So all those flashes and 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 uh, read. Uh, Mental stuff was all reshoots done after to kind of recognize the fact that, oh, crap, he's been through something. We should probably add that. (laughs) That makes sense now. We'll get into the many issues I have with this episode. This will be a fun one, folks. Hang tight. So we open up our episode with creepy music, as usual, outside of a suburban home, as usual. (laughs) We then uh, cut inside and see a young woman in bed. The lights in the rest of the house go out. You can see that under the door. And the young woman immediately bounces up and uh, sneaks out of the house, climbing out of her window. We next cut to her outside. She's sitting on a bench in a park area and a car pulls up. She goes up up to the car and apparently it's her ex-boyfriend, Ken. She tells him to go home, but he's like, Sandra, wait. He wants to talk to her. He wants to know where she's going. She says it's none of his business because she's not his girlfriend. And then another car pulls up, AJ, and uh, it's clear that... It's a very busy street in the middle of the night. (laughs) Yeah. It's clear, actually, though, that she was expecting this other car. But immediately, Ken gets out of his car and walks up to the car window and demands to know who this other person is. Unfortunately, his only answer is a gun blast to the chest. A little extreme. A little extreme reaction, I would think. (laughs) Yeah, a little extreme. Uh, Sandra runs up to the car instead of away, 
She runs up to the car and says, what are you doing? The man, who I will call our unsub at this point. I think that has been safely established by uh, <laughs> word of the overreactive gunshot. <laughs> yes. He, he gets out of the car, tells Sandra to get in. She refuses and she finally figures out, you know what? Might be a good idea to run away at this point. So she starts to run away. She hides behind a tree, but he quickly finds her. They do all that old trope of, oh, let me look out. Oh, nobody's there. And then she turns around and the the guy is right behind her. Uh, I suppose that was intended to scare us. (laughs) Okay. But he uh, quickly finds her, like I said, and he raises his hand and starts to go in for an attack. And then we quickly cut to the BAU office. And Prentice is saying, ow, almost as if she had just been attacked. Uh, this is not a good transition at all. We've gone from abusive violence to, oops, I spilled my coffee. I mean, come on. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. I get it. You're trying yeah. to be cute. This is too cute by half. Uh, I mean, we just, we basically, like you said, we just had the trope of, hey, there's an empty field except for this one tree. I'll hide behind the tree. He'll never find me here. Right. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, Prentice's attacker, as you say, was a hot cup of coffee. Uh, it spilled and gave her a little teeny weensy burnsy on her on her hand, I guess. Uh, Morgan comes up. Well, in fairness, she's, I mean, she's she's pale as a ghost. I mean, a <laughs> little burn is probably a big burn for her. <laughs> True. Morgan comes up uh, to her, asks her how her weekend was. And uh, she gives him some basic hard, I find it hard to talk about my personal life, having just met you folks recently, uh, talk before she finally admits to thinking that she uh, she had a bad date and that she blew it because she said something too nerdy. Uh, she mentioned Kilgore Trout, and it turns out that Morgan is an avid Kurt Vonnegut reader, <laughs> big time fan. Who would have thunk it? And she seems surprised to find this out. And uh, he says, yeah, she, he tells her that his favorite Vonnegut book was Mother Night. Hotch comes in, as usual, to spoil any kind of bonding whatsoever and tells them conference room in five. Yeah, you know, when work is underway, when cases come in, Hotch is all business. Now, he will, we have seen, have a sense of humor from time to time, but... Uh, it is kind of funny though when you think about the fact that these two ca- these two episodes the cases have flipped is that this is an example of Hotch not having a sense of humor <laughs> before right. when they all call him on not having a sense of humor. So I, I do like the fact exactly. that there was consistency of the writing where they were building up to this, you know, Hotch, you're a horrible person kind of thing. <laughs> like there was a need of release attention. I thought we had released it, but you know, again, the flipping of the order of the episodes kind of ruins that momentum. We next cut to the conference room. The team is watching a video. It's our victim. Uh, She's at a high school talent show. This video was taken about a month ago, and our victim's name is Sandra Davis. She's 16 years old. And the other victim was her on-again, off-again boyfriend named Ken Newcomb. Their bodies were found in a park in Roten, New York which they tell us is an affluent, mostly white suburb of New York City in Westchester County, New York. AJ, I, uh, I once owned a house in, in Westchester County, New York. Mm-hmm. I did not recall Groton 
So I had to look it up in case, because you never know. Right. And uh, and I'm very familiar with Croton and Croton on Hudson, Croton Harmon, also in Westchester. And uh, I didn't find a Groton in Westchester County. There was a Groton upstate New York near Ithaca, which is probably a few hundred miles away from yeah, where they, um, I think what they're trying to do here, uh, get a little, uh, oh, I hope this isn't exposed to be a dirt. Oh, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I think what they were trying to do here is, you know, when you drive upstate, for those of you not on the East Coast in this area, there's a little Connecticut notch that kind of eats into the road there as, as you're hidden up through Westchester. I think they're trying to hint that this is a town in Connecticut, right in the notch, but it's surrounded by New York on both sides. So if you drive straight north, due north, you go New York, Connecticut, New York real quick. I think this is supposed to be maybe a Connecticut town that's sitting in Westchester County, but it's not really part of New York. And that's really hard to explain. Uh, so they just said, yeah, it's in New York. <laughs> and also, I think it's very interesting that they take maybe like, because as far as I can recall, this show has always used real world locations, even when it's tiny towns. So I'm thinking maybe they decided, oh, this is a politically charged thing. We don't want to accuse a town of being a certain way, blah, blah, blah. So we're just going to give it a, a, a name here. I kind of felt that. I mean, it's possible that too. I mean, because for me, I know there's a Groton in Connecticut. So to me, like that just immediately said, oh, they want it to be in Connecticut, but it's in New York, Westchester County. And yeah, that does make sense for me who grew up in New York City and, and understands the geography. So I just think they just kind of let, right, let's not pin this one down too much because it's just, it's outside of New York City. Let's just... Yes. encapsulated all there. But your point is well taken. Perhaps they did not want to... I mean, considering some of the small towns that they do go to that are real and the horrific things that happen there, really, are they that sensitive to it? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, this is the uh, third of three killings that are believed to be hate crimes. The first two victims were Keisha Andrews, 15, and Vicki Williams, 17, they show their pictures, and I suppose at this point I should finally mention that all three victims happen to be African American. All the female victims. All the all three female victims. Yes, they all disappeared from their homes in Central Westchester, and their bodies were found in a wooded area in a southern part of the county near the city. And as we look at their crime-seamed photos, here is where we first see Reed starting to fidget about, and then flashing back in his head to last week's beatdown that he suffered from the Vanderbeek. And then we go back to the conversation. The girls were strangled, beaten, and stabbed. And we see the gruesome photos again, and they have swastikas painted on their faces. These are the first two victims, obviously. Happy Valentine's um, Day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and... So when it's asked what the connection is to these latest two victims, it's mentioned that there's a swastika, but this time it was painted on the side of the boyfriend's car. Prentiss points out that this most recent case seems to be a different victimology, and Morgan says uh, maybe it's an escalation, and Gideon says or it could be a different killer altogether. And apparently there's more because a community leader named Revan Williams took this on as a political issue of a racial hate in the suburbs. And we cut to the video of the Reverend giving a press conference 
decrying the killings and saying the police are doing nothing to stop it. When will the racists be confronted? And JJ says, in response to Reverend Williams' muckracking, a black kid was beaten up in the streets of Groton this afternoon. I just find it hard to believe JJ would use the word muckracking. That's all I'm going to say on that. But, you know, uh, sure. Uh, <laughs> you're, it's not common parlance by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and and I, I have been taken to calling uh, this reverend Reverend Sharpticon. Because <laughs> he's basically just. Uh, is he Al Sharpton or Louis Farrakhan? Yes. We'll just mush them together, c- combine them to one Reverend Sharpticon. <laughs> I, I did note, um, maybe it was a little later, but I did note he also took on the vocal cadence of Dr. King as well. Sort of the but, cadence when he but spoke. But doesn't every, yeah, every single black civil rights leader since Dr. King kind of throw in the Dr. King cadence. <laughs> they all kind of do sound the same because it's just the reference from the pulpit kind of sound there. So yeah. you have to talk and then give the pause while you escalate till you get to the end. You know, <laughs> exactly. In any case, there is a neo-Nazi group called the White Stallions, <laughs> which cracked me up. And, uh, they claimed responsibility for beating up this kid in Groton. And uh, they are based out of Connecticut, so your, your hunch is probably even more correct. Prentice uh, can't seem to even believe that there are neo-Nazi groups in Connecticut, but okay. Oh, oh, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What year is this again? <laughs> and JJ says, well, the mayor of Groton has reached out for help before the situation escalates anymore. And we cut to Reed, who's still caught up in flashbacks. <laughs> and then we cut back to JJ. And she's providing the demographics of Groton, which has a population of 42,000 people and 8% are black. So Gideon thinks that the mayor has significant cause to worry. It could flare up into a full-scale race riot. Credits. Criminal minds, criminal minds, criminal minds, AJ, we come back to see the BAU jet flying over a lovely green screenshot of the New York City skyline. (laughs) And uh, Gideon provides us with our opening quote. From the deepest desires often come the deadliest hate. Socrates. Mm. I bet there were no white supremacy groups when Socrates was around. On uh, the plane, Emily is looking at the files and uh, case files, and she's pointing out that the first two victims had traces of GHB, but weren't sexually assaulted. So why would the unsub use a date rape drug to commit a hate crime? Good question, Emily. A little bit of a mixed message there. Absolutely. We see Reed is still having his flashbacks. Now it's to the time when he was having the superheroine injected into him. and. Then Reed suggests maybe uh, he wanted to weaken them so that they can't fight back. And Emily says, yeah, but there was no GHB in the double homicide. And Morgan points out that there's a lot different about the double homicide. JJ walks in, well, walks from the back of the plane and says she just got some new information off the fax machine. Well, she doesn't say the fax machine, but she clearly has received a fax. And it's... Apparently, a few weeks before the double homicide, a threatening letter was delivered 
to Sandra Davis, who showed it to her parents, who then told the police, but the police couldn't determine anything about it. And we see a picture of the letter typed up on plain white paper, and it says, We see Ken with you, and it makes us sick. Take care to stop this now, or you will pay. If you tell anyone about this, you will pay. Reed says that this note is very strange. It doesn't seem real. The use of we in a threat is almost always bogus. It's usually that that's usually just one individual trying to diffuse the responsibility. And the message seems contradictory because on the one hand, they want the couple to stop seeing each other. On the other hand, they don't want them to go public with it. And Hotch mentions that the point of hate crimes is to increase publicity, not to decrease it. Yeah, and I'm not sure if you have mentioned this at this point, but Ken was white. Yes, I did not <laughs> so mention that. this is that. an interracial relationship, which is, which is why, uh, in, in the eye of the white supremacist, this is an outrage. Exactly. So, then Reed says, it's more effective to give a threat if everyone knows they're going to be in danger if they do this behavior. The person who wrote this note, if they were doing hate crimes, would want Sandra to tell people about the note. And JJ says, well, this doesn't sound like a guy that's ready to kill. But Reed says, actually, it doesn't sound like a guy at all. And he points out the phrase, take care to stop this. And he says that displays empathy, not typical of a male trying to threaten someone. He's certain that the message was written by a female and based on the lack of psychological sophistication of the note, he thinks it's most likely an adolescent. JJ's like, you think a girl is killing these kids? And Reed says, I think a girl wrote the note. Uh, <laughs> fair, fair. Yeah. Very true. Yep. At which point, JJ, uh, JJ shows amazing restraint by not breaking out the word miscegenation. And <laughs> <laughs> Gideon says, well, we're going to call that, that note mystery number one. And mystery number two is the autopsy of Sandra Davis because it was inconclusive. Uh, she suffered blunt force trauma to the face, had some bruising around her neck, but the cause of her death is still unclear. AJ Hotch tells us that we have a lot of questions. Let's go get some answers. Oh, fair enough. At least there's no timeline yet. Uh, <laughs> you know, we always try to go, where is our artificial timeline? Uh, we'll get one, of course, but uh, at the moment we do not have one. We cut to the team in front of City Hall, and the screen helpfully tells us this is Westchester County, New York. Town not important. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> they meet Mayor Hughes, who introduces us all to Detective Rick Ware from the state police. And he is who they put in charge because they were way above their heads. It has nothing to do with the fact that Detective Ware is black. This is my opinion, AJ. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and let's let's be clear. Uh, I will not be calling him a detective where at all. This is Nate from How to Get Away with Murder. <laughs> That's all I'm going to be calling him because he's, he's Nate. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, they're kind of skeptical. They don't want anybody making assumptions about this case because this is a good town with good people. And, you know, we don't. Blah, 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 blah. The usual local, uh, don't come here acting like we're all racist type of com uh, commentary is going on here. Hey, hey, uh, hey. And Gideon. We have several black friends. I mean, there's 8% of my <laughs> friends are black. And uh, by the way, I'm perfectly happy if you teach some critical race theory in our schools. 
<laughs> yeah, I could. If this was written in 2021, I feel this episode might be a little bit different. But <laughs> you think? Just a just a wee bit. Uh, but uh, Gideon says, "Look, we don't know anything about this case yet. We're going to concentrate on the double murder first. We're going to make sure it's the same killer." And the mayor is like, "Wait, there could be more than one." Um, <laughs> and Morgan says, look, they don't know anything yet. All they know is that the threat to Sandra Davis was written by an adolescent girl and a police officer whose name is uh, Officer Kale, which I had to find out much later in the episode um, by reading his name tag. Uh, But anyway, he looks a little bit sus when they say that. And then he admits that there was a girl that they suspected at first, but they talked to her and dismissed her. Morgan says, well, he wants to talk to her. Detective Ware slash Nate thinks that's a waste of time, but Morgan wants to decide that for himself. And I'm like, okay, this week it looks like it's going to be decidedly unhelpful on the local front. Clearly, this is not uh, your welcome with open arms. Please come help. We'll do anything we can. This is politics. (laughs) Yeah. We cut to inside the police station. Nate explains. Now I'm calling him Nate. (laughs) Okay. You have to. It's Nate. (laughs) Nate explains that after they got the note, they asked around the school who might have a grudge against Sandra and Ken. And the only girl's name that came up was one Tanya Mathis. Supposedly, Ken dumped her for Sandra, which Ken denied. Tanya swore that she had nothing to do with the note. And Ware finds it hard to believe that she'd write a racist note since shocker. Tanya also happens to be African-American. Yeah, but they reveal this <laughs> as if it is yeah. some sort of being real. Well, I don't think that she would have done such a thing. Why? Well, why don't you take a look for yourself and see if you can figure that one out? <laughs> oh, no! Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, geez, I people. wasn't fond of that. Jeez, people. <laughs> uh, Morgan wants to leave her there in the interrogation room waiting a little while. Because he's going to take the scared straight approach to interrogation. We uh, then cut to the double double homicide crime scene. Hotch and Gideon are there. They're talking to a cop who informs them that the kids did live nearby. They ask uh, the cop, who is Officer Kale, by the way. uh, They ask him what they were doing there. And he explains that this was a hookup spot, basically. But Hotch doesn't think that they were there on a date that night because Ken was wearing a sweatshirt and tennis shoes while Sandra was wearing a dress, high heels and makeup. She was dressed up to go out. Their bodies were found in front of the car, but it was obvious that the girl was killed from a spot a short distance away in the park near that one tree. (laughs) And uh, then her body was dragged over to the spot in front of the car. Gideon says, so Ken was shot first. Sandra started to run away. Unsub caught up to her, killed her, beat her, and strangled her. Hotch asks if he had a gun. Why didn't he shoot her as well? Officer Kale suggests maybe he knew he could overpower her, but Hotch says it's more than that. He risked her escaping. Then he caught up to her and strangled her. He was completely focused on her. And Gideon makes some kind of logical connection in his head and says, Sandra had a date with the unsub. Gideon, uh, yeah, and he sees Gideon doing his spaced out, staring off into the distance. This whole scene is, he, he's not really present, but he's kind of like auto-responding. And sometimes that's when he blurts out these these leaps in logic. And certainly, even though he's right, kind of, 
I mean, she was there to meet the unsub. I wouldn't say call it a date, but certainly she was there to meet the unsub. So he's not wrong. (laughs) We cut back now to Morgan and Prentice interviewing Tanya Mathis. And Morgan is going to play bad cop. He lets her know that they're the FBI. The note is a federal crime. The people she threatened are dead. Then Prentice goes in with the good cop. She says, we know you didn't kill anyone, but we need to know why you wrote this note. She gets it. She was angry with Ken because she didn't want to admit that she was his girlfriend. And uh, Tanya's like, I am his girlfriend. And uh, Princess asks, well, what about Sandra, Tanya? Why were you so angry with her? It's not just about her going out with Ken, is it? Tanya finally admits that it was all about that damn talent show. She thinks she was just as popular, as good as Sandra, I should say. Sandra was this quiet girl that no one liked. Then all of a sudden she sang and she's Little Miss Popular and Ken's all over her. And it's just not fair. Prentice says, so you wrote the note for revenge. She finally breaks down. She knows it was stupid, but she just wanted to scare them. Morgan and Prentice leave the interrogation room. Uh, Nate says that they're checking Tanya out. But Morgan says, oh, don't bother. That girl didn't kill those kids. And, and Nate looks so confused right now. And I'm just like... Is he, is he the worst cop ever? <laughs> He's like, oh, I see. We should have accused her of the murder. No, no, you really shouldn't have. Wait, what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you just said, no, that's not what I said. I just said I wanted to talk to her. What? He's just not getting it. <laughs> no, not at all. We cut to a bathroom, I assume at the police station. Uh, Reed walks into the bathroom checks to make sure no one is in the stall. Then he goes over and locks the bathroom door. He stares into the mirror. He pulls out his vials of the liquid crack-a-lac. Uh, he flashes back again to the beak, injecting him. He protests that he doesn't want it. And all of a sudden, this part this is another part that bothered me because you hear Hotch, or maybe it was Morgan. I couldn't tell who it was, but they were singing out, has it? Shouting out, and you could hear it from behind the door, Reed, hey, has anybody seen Reed? That just didn't ring true to me, AJ. <laughs> well, and it's because it was, this is an insert scene where they're like, oh, we got to show that he's got the drugs, remember? Because he got the drugs at the end of the episode. And so he's still carrying them with him, and he's looking at them, and he's remembering. And, uh, well, that wasn't in the original script. Hey, Reed, come out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and then, then was, you then you could have him running in where that line wasn't there before, where he was really just discovering this information. Hey guys, look what I found! As opposed to, oh yeah, you were calling me. Here's something. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I was just in the bathroom, guys. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what she didn't say because he wasn't just in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, he goes over to Hotch, hands him the coroner's report. Because that was his real original point of this exactly. of this scene, and uh, Hutch reads it. The victim was beaten so extensively that the cause of death was indeterminate. Postmortem stab wounds were also discovered. Nate wants to know what that means, and Hutch tells him that postmortem postmortem stab wounds almost always indicate sexual homicide. I mean, thank goodness he didn't take it literally. Well, what does that mean? Well, postmortem means after death. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know. You've exhibited was... no knowledge of police work thus far. I thought I'd just start from square one. If this was a Zucker Brothers production, perhaps we would have gotten that line. Yes. The morgue? What is it? Well, it's a place where we send the dead bodies. But that's not important right now. So Nate says, so you guys are thinking that this is two different killers, a different killer, right? Hotch is like, no. What we're saying is... If it was the same killer, there was overkill, which indicates that he didn't get what he wanted from Sandra. Again, Reed has a quick flashback as he sees some photos. And uh, yeah, it's back to the beak torturing his feet with whatever weapon he was torturing his feet with. Listen to last week's episode if you haven't, uh, folks. I'll give you the details. Anyway, Morgan says uh, sexual offenders don't, they kill for sexual release. And in this case, there's no sign of sexual assault of his victims. That means that he probably fetishizes and takes a souvenir from each one of his victims that he uses to, as Morgan said, crudely get off. So Nate says, well, that doesn't sound like a hate crime. (laughs) (laughs) Ding, 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 ding. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you are correct, Nate. Uh, Hutch says they're pretty sure hate wasn't the primary motive at all. And Prentice says this guy has a specific physical type, and he tries to cover his tracks. Gideon says he's a serial killer. <laughs> they always give Gideon the like the dramatic last line to. Yes. Yeah. Basically. And now we can go to commercial. We're not going to commercial. All right. Well, now we can go to the next scene. <laughs> we are going to the next scene, right? Okay. I need a coffee. <laughs> so we next cut to a young woman. She's sitting at a park bench. Our unsub's car pulls up. She goes over to the car and says, hi. Our unsub is like, hi, Naomi. Nice to see you again. She gets into the car, says thanks for picking her up. He says he wouldn't have it any other way. And we do cut to a, a break at this point. He's a serial killer. Oh, wait, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I'm very upset that there's no there's no uh, Jethro Tull in this episode. Sitting on the park bench. Dear, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that riff is going to be stuck in my head now. Okay, thanks. (laughs) We cut back to a little bit later at the station, and team is watching another Reverend Williams joint. (laughs) And uh, like I said, he's 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 orating like a combination now of of Dr. King and Crazy Joe Clark from Lean on Me. He's going on about how the FBI only showed up after a white boy was killed. He's pulled out a baseball bat, says we have to protect ourselves. And these or these people will not get away with this. And Gideon just deadpans. Oh, that's not helpful. <laughs> if we're not going to get suffering done and they want to see us swing, we're going to take some swings ourselves and, and, and baseball. <laughs> oh, boy. So Nate asks, what the what do the swastikas mean? Hotch says they're a distraction. Killer, he wants us to think that he's driven by hate, um, which is disguising his real motive, which in this case, they believe to be serial sexual homicide. Gideon is confident that this unsub is from this county. He knew what kind of hysteria that would flare up from the swastikas. And uh, they have some judge going to talk to the reverend to see if he can tone down his rhetoric. Meanwhile, the team is going to try to confirm that the double homicide is linked to the first two cases, so they need to go talk to the families of the victims. 
We next cut to Gideon and Morgan talking to the parents of Sandra Davis. They can't explain how she went missing. Uh, Morgan asks maybe if she snuck out the window, but they say she couldn't because it was painted shut. Uh, but a contraire, according to Sandra's sister, Bree, who I guess was listening right, side, right outside the door, she says, I fixed that window a long time ago and used to sneak out all the time. Apparently, though, this was Sandra's first time sneaking out. She was the good one, as Bree says. Uh, and Bree says she didn't deserve this. And Prentice says, well, no one deserves this. Gideon is looking at a plaque on the wall and turns to them and says, your daughter like to sing? <laughs> Which we already knew because of the stupid talent show thing. Um, so this should not be a surprise to anyone. But Gideon, of course, who never pays attention to the important stuff, uh, <laughs> unless he discovers it himself, now has discovered it. Cut back to the police station. They've uh, dug up everything on the first two victims. Basically, the girls were good students who stayed out of trouble. And they both liked to sing. It was their passion, just like Sandra Davis. Prentice is like, they're all African-American girls between the ages of 15 and 17 who like to sing. I've got it. Pretty specific. I've got it. No, touch. I got it. The unsub is Rodney Jerkins. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> that makes so much uh, sense now. <laughs> uh, yes. So Prentice says, uh, yeah, sounds like the same unsub to me. And uh, the fact that they like to sing could be part of this guy's MO. Maybe he pulls off some kind of ruse on them. And uh, Officer Kell comes in to say, well, they found that there's another girl missing. Naomi Dade, 16 years old. Hotch is like, when? The cop, Officer Kell says, last night. And Gideon wonders why they're just finding that out now. Hotch says, that's not important. Right now, <laughs> what's important is the first victims were found after a couple of days. So there's a chance that this one is still alive. Gideon says, well, let's get to the profile before it's too late. And then we cut to a quick little disturbing scene of our unsub walking up to a stereo and listening to a CD. And it's Naomi introducing herself. And then we hear someone named Keisha introducing herself. And then the other girls. And there's quick little violent imagery of him attacking them, slapping them, and them screaming in fear. We cut back to the team. And they're doing a typically long profiling scene, stating everything we know so far. Uh, one new thing that they say is that they're looking for a black male between the ages of 20 and 35. They know that he's black because sexually motivated killers almost always kill within their own race. Uh, the victims were all good girls, good students, considered low risk, which indicates that the unsub himself has a high intelligence. Uh, this guy is a smooth talker. He makes people feel at ease. Reed brings up Def Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> and we see Reed in the car with Dahmer and getting pulled over. And he's able to smoothly talk the police out of searching the garbage bag that is filled with body parts in his back seat. Our unsub is a hustler who knows how to treat impressionable girls. And Hotch is now on the sidewalk near a killer named Victor Pellegrino. Yes, who is pretending to be a movie producer and talking to Christine Johnson, apparently telling her she's right for a James Bond movie and she was never seen again. And then she disappears in the vision, which is just, it's just, ugh, it's just done so badly. 
Uh, I, I, I'm going to just declare it right now. This is one of the most forgettable Criminal Minds episodes. <laughs> just, just, there's a reason they tried to bury this one. In <laughs> yeah. They think these girls are all, because that these girls are all singers, the unsub may be connected to the recording industry. Also, he has a vehicle big enough to transport a body, not too flashy, possibly a large dark sedan. Uh, they recommend hypothetically, of course, yes. <laughs> hypothetically. <laughs> they recommend that uh, they put this profile out to the news, to the paper, every media outlet possible, because there's probably some woman out there who uh, came across this guy but didn't fall for his ruse, and that's who they need to find to help out. The key they also say is that whatever the souvenir is, because once he has that, it's when he kills his victims. And they think that he was interrupted when killing Sandra Davis before he could get whatever the souvenir was. So he may revisit her house or any place she may have frequented. So they should put surveillance up around those locations. And also any location where the unsub might approach the young girls, like churches, schools, libraries, and coffee shops. Someone in the community should be able to provide them with some good leads. Now, I will say they're not wrong about the the fact that uh, he did not get his souvenir, and that's why the the killing is a little different and everything. But I mean, he was interrupted by Ken, and he shot him. Obviously, he was interrupted. <laughs> we we know this to be true because he interrupted him picking up Sandra. So I don't know why they still th- are talking in hypothetical here. I'm like, yeah. I, we're not sure what's different this time. Yeah, we are sure what's different this time. Yeah, so they're about to uh, basically hang it up and get to work, but all of a sudden they notice that the mayor has come in and he's stopping everybody from going to work. And uh, so they, they're they like, what's up, mayor? And uh, the mayor is like, I can't let this profile go public. The uh, reverend has already stirred up enough trouble. What will happen if I tell the press that the killer is black? They're going to say it's racial profiling. And Gideon explains it's not racial profiling, which is targeting suspects because of their race. But what's different is we provided a profile which includes race. (laughs) I I get what he meant, but it it sounded kind of (laughs) weird. Yeah, uh, what, what he meant to say is, we're not telling you to look for a black man because we have a suspect that we need to catch. We're asking you to look for a black man because the suspect is black. Yeah. That's the difference. Yeah. We don't not know who it is and say, might as well round up the black people first. <laughs> That's racial profiling. We're looking for a black man. Hence. Yes. Look for black men. <laughs> and the mayor says, well, my point is I've never even heard of a black serial killer. And neither has the rest of my community. Uh, Hotch says, well, you can believe it or not, but they exist. (laughs) And it's only a matter of time before he kills another girl. Uh, The mayor doesn't want to talk about it. He says, Detective Ware is more than capable of heading this investigation. And I'm like, well, then why did you call in the BAU? But anyway... Okay. Why, why did you call the BAU? And by the way, uh, can I hand you this VHS tape of the life of Wayne Williams? <laughs> <laughs> so, Morgan asks Nate if he's going to let this happen. Like, you know, my brother, you going to let this happen? You know, that's the kind of uh, tone mm-hmm. it is. And, uh, and Nate is like, 
But if we do this, we're going to make every black man in the county a target. All of a sudden, Officer Kale comes in, lets them know that they just found Naomi Davis's body. And JJ comes in to let them know that there's a mass of reporters outside. And Morgan asks Nate, what's it going to be? And Gideon says, please let us help you. And we cut to a break. Because Gideon, again, has to have the last word before we cut to the next scene. <laughs> we come back and the detective is finishing up the press conference. And afterward, Hotch is telling him he's made the right choice. So obviously he gave them the profile. Uh, and he's hoping that it doesn't come back to bite him in the ass. He doesn't want to spread fear that there's a dangerous black man running around this county. And Hot says, let's just focus on the case and how to catch this guy. And Nate is like, well, what do we do? And they tell him that they have to get the word out, not just in the news, but they need to talk to the kids face to face, give them all the profile. And Prentice brings up the talent show at the school. Maybe the unsub saw her sing there. Gideon tells her to, that's a good idea. He says, go talk to the kids at the high school. And meanwhile, JJ has set up a tip line. And Morgan doesn't want to hang around. He's bored. So he asks Nate if he wants to go out patrolling with him. And Nate agrees. Cut to a little bit later. JJ is telling the team that the tips are starting to roll in. Uh, she's going over them. Meanwhile, Reed is still looking at the crime scene photos and still flashing back in his head to Tobias Hankel, putting the bullet in his gun and aiming at Adam and pulling the trigger. And uh, JJ is saying one of the tips was that it was the Reverend Jesse Jackson. <laughs> so she basically has nothing useful, but she'll keep checking. Officer Kale comes up and says that he has a witness that saw a black man and a black Lincoln driving around the latest victim's house yesterday. And JJ says, well, that's the second sighting of that vehicle. Reed says, well, it fits the profile. So Gideon tells JJ to include it in the latest press release. Cut to Morgan and, and Nate in a car. And uh, Morgan was just hanging up the phone, I suppose, getting that information. Yeah, not only that, not only that, but can I just say this is another really dropped ball by the show because JJ is standing there and she gets the tip that, of the car and reads like, oh my goodness, yes, it's a car. It is broad daylight mm -hmm. outside. Cut to Morgan and Nate. It is yes. nighttime. <laughs> I mean, come on, people. I, I thought about that. Didn't even bother to mention it here. Well, I'm going to mention it because, I mean, J.J. is not the type to not call immediately. Yeah. So, J.J. did not drop the ball here. This is the editor dropping the ball. I mean, it's bad enough she set up a tip line and got tips coming in before anyone knew about the tip line. <laughs> but, okay, I'll let that pass because maybe J.J. is yes. that good. <laughs> so, Morgan is talking to Nate. They're, they have a little heart-to-heart, -heart, A.J. Morgan is telling him it took real balls to stand up to the mayor like that. He knows that it was a tough decision. Nate basically says, don't you ever wish it didn't matter? And by it, he means color. And Morgan starts going to judge me by the content of my character. And Nate asks him why it needs to be part of the equation. People are dying. They need to get the bad guy. That should be it. No half-cocked reverends running around getting people mad about the wrong thing. No mayor so worried about offending black folks that he doesn't even want to tell the community what to look out for. He just sighs and says it's exhausting sometimes. Morgan tells him, look, that's the way it's always been. Politicians, community leaders, they do what they do. We do what we do. We're foot soldiers out in these streets getting the job done. Yeah, it's a, 
it's a, it's a, it's a conversation that works if you have two black cops kind of commiserating. Uh, might have worked better if this wasn't probably written by a bunch of white writers in a room because <laughs> it just none of this sounds normal or natural. Oh, they mean well, AJ. Mean, well-meaning, sure. Effective, no. And uh, so they're sitting there, and they have a little chuckle together, but all of a sudden, a black town car passes by. So they follow the direction they went. They do find it parked on a street. They walk up to the car, guns drawn. But no one is there, even though they were, like, right behind the car, <laughs> practically, uh okay fine it took them a little time to to see it parked on the street it's dark sure yeah. Yeah. so then they decide to get out and case the house in the area where the car is in front of morgan goes around on one side uh nate goes around on the other after a bit of tense searching and they have their guns drawn and they're looking and they don't find anything but Morgan hears a car door close and he rushes back to the front to see that it was just a car service picking up someone. He radios where uh, Nate and lets him know that it was a false alarm. And uh, so Nate says, okay, he opens a gate to walk back to the front, but immediately behind the gate is a very frightened looking white homeowner. And I'm like, oh boy, here we go. And he shoots Detective Ware right away. No questions asked. Not only that, but then he 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 screams out in almost glee, I got him, honey, yeah. I got him. <laughs> I mean, geez, really? So at first I thought this actor was the guy who plays Steve in Sex in the City, but it, it was not him. Very similar look, but yeah, not not the same guy. Morgan runs around, yells at the shooter, put his gun down, and there's a supposed to be dramatic tense scene of between the homeowner homeowner and uh morgan and the homeowner looks very confused morgan pulls out his badge and he stutters oh he didn't know once he finds out that morgan is the law morgan basically yells at him to go call 911 he kneels beside nate tries to keep him talking brings up his kids tells him to talk about his kids but after a moment it's not going to work, and Nate dies. Yeah, and this is why you don't name a character who you're going to later write another character screaming their last name. You don't write them with the last name Where, because Morgan is screaming, Where? Yes. Where? Where? <laughs> you know, name, name him Collins at that point or something. Because <laughs> he just sounds like an idiot screaming Where as the con shot rack focus goes up. You know, like, oh man. I will say, that this this scene is it's just awful. It's like really writers, really, but it's like I mean, it's it's real in the sense that I mean, I don't know what your experience was of seeing the movie Get Out, but the very end of the movie, when the you see the sirens, and I've seen YouTube mm -hmm. video reactions of this in a white theater versus a black theater, and let me say. I would have felt far more at home in the black theater because I saw the silence and I went, oh, shit. <laughs> and the white theater, like, yay, the cops are here. I'm like, oh, God, really? Do you not understand <laughs> what's going on here? Because clearly 
there is a, a different world for some people out there, and they're, they're exactly the type of people who aren't going to check their privilege, yeah. and they're not going to be, hey, honey, I shot the man, yay! And I got to tell you, I mean, you've already mentioned it, this whole episode, it just feels like, yes, these are serious problems, these are serious issues, but maybe we should have had Jordan Peele write this episode, <laughs> yes. or someone of color to give some authenticity to it because it just did not it just didn't feel right it just didn't ring true it yeah it it's it's and it's not even done yet <laughs> yeah oh no no we it, it ain't over people uh, no no yeah our, our cop our, our our hero cop uh essentially told the truth to the public and has been shot for his efforts great let's not tell the truth to the public anymore <sighs> god so anyway, we come back from a break. Detective Ware's body. I'm going to give him the the privilege of giving him his name here. Ware! Ware! <laughs> it's being taken away. Hotch pulls up and he spots Officer Kale, asks what the hell happened. The homeowner is in the back of the cop car. The door is open and he's saying he didn't know it was a cop. They saw a black car parked in front of their house. And then they saw a black guy with a gun sneaking around their yard. And Hotch is like, so you shot him? And uh, he says he was scared. He has a family. And Officer Cole says, so did Detective Ware. And closes the car door on him. Uh, Hotch goes over to Morgan, who's sitting on the sidewalk, looking, you know, in his little stunned state. So Hotch asks him if he's okay. Morgan just doesn't even answer him. Hotch's phone rings, and it's JJ who lets him know another girl just went missing. That's, this is the best scene of the episode. Yeah. Because it's just Morgan sitting there going, can you believe this shit? Yeah. And he doesn't have to say anything because that's the point. You don't have to beat us to death with dialogue and platitudes. Just just Morgan sitting there silent. That's all you need to tell the story. We get it. Yep. We cut to JJ telling them that the newest missing girl is named Allie Hadley. She told her mom that she was going to be sleeping at a friend's house. She never showed up. Gideon asks if the mom was sure she wasn't with some other friends or some guy. And JJ says, the mom says she never does this. She's a, Gideon finishes her sentence, good girl. JJ says, yeah. Crazy about Elvis. (laughs) (laughs) JJ says, Yep, she's never does something like this. She's also African-American. She's 15 years old, and she loves to sing. Reed comes in to tell them that they have a witness on the way in right now. It's a girl who saw the report on the news and said a guy came up to her about a month ago claiming to work for a red company. A record company. A red company. (laughs) AJ, we cut to this. (laughs) <laughs> Can I get a witness? Yes! <laughs> we cut to this girl talking to them. She's saying it was after choir practice at the church. A black man approached her, said he was an executive of some record companies, and he was scouting talent at the local churches in the area. Said she had a great voice. He'd like to record her. She told him she wasn't interested. He gave her a business card and told her to call him if she changed her mind. She says it didn't even have a company name. All it had on it was a name and a phone number. It looked fake. How could anyone fall for that? Uh, Gideon asks if she has the card. 
She says she didn't have to keep the card because she knew who this guy was. <gasps> okay. <laughs> now, let me ask you, Kintad. <laughs> this happened to you. Somebody you knew came up to you and gave you a BS story about being a record executive. And you know this person is not a record executive because you know who this person is. And now you're recounting to this story to the cops. Here's how the story would go if I were telling this story. So, you know who, you know something about the young sub? Terrence Waitland. <laughs> this fool came up to me and tried to say he was a record executive. He's not a record executive. He's just some dude from the neighborhood. Terrence Waitland. You don't tell a 50 minute long story and they go, oh, no, I know his name. I know him. <sighs> yeah. I took it as she didn't know his name. She just knew him, as we will learn later, as the piano player. But then again, leave with still, that. But still, she could have said. He's the piano yes, player. Exactly. He's the piano player. Like, maybe she doesn't know his name. You're right. But come right. on. You don't You don't hide. You don't bury the lead here. You lead with the fact. So you know who it is? Yes, the piano player. Wait, all right. Let them go slow down. Yep. Tell us what happened from the beginning. Exactly. We cut actually next to Garcia, AJ, who answers the phone with. I was beginning to think you guys had forgotten all about me, <laughs> which I assume she was talking to Aaron Zellman and the rest of the writing staff. That's um, a great line. But actually, it's a great line. <laughs> yes. Hey, we haven't used Garcia this episode. Oh, she's going to be pissed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So actually, she's talking to Morgan. And after their normal little flirty flirty, he says they're looking for a freelance musician that played a keyboard for the girls high school musical. The kid, the school gave them a name. It's Terrence Wakeland. And Garcia Clickety Clacks comes up with three Terrence Wakelands in the New York metro area. So Reed adds that he may work in a recording studio or a record company. So Garcia cross-checks the names against the IRS records and narrows it down to Terrence Wakeland, who works at A&L Studios in Mount Vernon. Looks like the studio went belly up a few months ago, but he still works there as a security guard. And we see Garcia has his picture up on her screen. And I said, hey, it's Diggle. If you watch the show Arrow, you know exactly who that is. If you don't, then you wouldn't recognize him as Diggle. But there you go. I immediately said Diggle, <laughs> uh, which is a fun name to say. There you go. Uh, we cut to our black town car pulling up in front of A&L Studios. And Wakeland is there and he's telling Allie she's lucky the studio was available tonight. He asks her if she was nervous and she says no. And he says, good, don't worry. I'll have you back before your parents even know you're gone. We Cut to a cop car. All right, we're starting to get into even more problems for me here, AJ. <laughs> yeah, no, we yeah, go ahead, a, go ahead. <laughs> we cut to a cop car. And it's driving with the siren on, and we hear its radio telling all units, all units, we got to get to A&L Studios, <laughs> which is 5663 Vincent Boulevard in Mount Vernon. All right. Officer Kale is in the back seat, and Hotch is driving, and Morgan is there, and Officer Kale asks him what the chances are of catching this guy in time, and I'm thinking not great. Since they appear to be in southern Manhattan. <laughs> I, I, again, okay, if you don't do new, know New York, maybe <laughs> you're not calling BS on this. Mount Vernon has a police department, AJ. 
Call the Mount Vernon police. <laughs> Instead of, yes. I don't even know why they're in southern Manhattan. Uh, Mount Vernon is north. So is Westchester County. They don't have to go into Manhattan for any reason in at fact, all. They don't have jurisdiction. <laughs> no, the Manhattan police don't have jurisdiction of Matt Vernon. <sighs> I don't know if that drove you crazy. It drove me crazy <laughs> because this, what's going to happen is a whole scene where it's how long does it take to get there? <sighs> yeah, the, they had, you see, they had all the extras and, and set stuff for a New York City because, you know, there's a lot of lot of shows and, and crimes set in New York City. So they had the vehicles and the uniforms. They had to justify why all their NYPD vehicles were about to pull off. <laughs> so they just, again, they just said, eh, hand wipe, hand wash, hand wave. No, 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 no. Don't think about it. This isn't near New York City. Therefore, we can use our NYPD uniforms. <sighs> anyway, <laughs> we cut back to the studio. Allie is uh, singing God Bless the Child, which was a very blatant song choice, I thought. Um, and uh, she finishes up and Wakeland is there saying she killed that last take. Uh, he'll be right out. So he comes out of the control room and uh, Allie says she's never been in a real recording studio before. And Wakeland is saying, well, you wouldn't know it. You sound you're real comfortable. Sound like it's perfect for this. Now, he's basically laying on the charm. Um, he says her throat must be tired. He offers her some water. We cut to the cop cars, zooming to the scene. But they come across a closed road. Closed for construction. Because there's <laughs> only one way, AJ, to get <laughs> north in <laughs> New York. Uh, the, they They do say... Uh, there's not a faster way, and Officer Kells, he doesn't know of one. I, I Again, why were you in the city anyway? And why didn't you call the Mount Vernon police to go there? And uh, this bothers me, but we cut back to the studio. And again, it, it comes down to our, uh, they need a time limit at some point in this. And this time limit is, oh, this girl's just been taken. We need to get there immediately. Yeah, you know they could have they could have actually investigated this and found out who he was yesterday. It could have happened. <laughs> and they forgot about Garcia. She would have found it a lot faster. Yeah, uh, exactly. You know, there's a lot of detective uh, faux pas throughout this entire episode. I mean, you know how they're sitting there going, "Oh yeah, we just found the body. When were you going to tell us this?" Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we, someone else, another girl's been taken. When were you going to tell us this? Like, so there's a lot of that going on. So they have this artificial time thing. And like you said, it's like, well, we have the address. Let's drive there. Great. We're there. No, no, no. We need a figurative and literal roadblock in our way to get us from getting there immediately. So we cut back to the studio. Wakelin is still laying on the charm. To Allie, he's telling her her voice is smoky like you'd hear in a 30s Harlem supper club. And uh, she, she has no idea what this music does to him. And all of a sudden, we can see Allie is starting to feel the effect of the GHB that was clearly in the water he gave her. He asks her if she's all right. She looks like she's about to pass out. 
I suppose I should mention we cut to a break there, but we come back at the exact same moment. Not only, yeah, the exact same yes. moment. We repeat the dialogues. We actually exactly. go back True. about 15 seconds. <laughs> he says again, are you all right? She says, yeah, she's just a little dizzy. And so he continues talking, but we're seeing and hearing him now from Allie's point of view. And he's look, looking he's looking blurry. He's speaking in slow motion. And he's saying, you ever feel that? Like there's something so beautiful that you can't let it live? Red flags, red flags, red flags. <laughs> and he starts walking toward her. So beautiful, you can't let it live to show you, to remind you how ugly you are. Allie says, I don't feel so good. <laughs> and all of a sudden... We get to a point where Wakelin is slapping Allie. She's down, and Wakelin is screaming at her. But she manages to get off a good kick right in the groin. She's groggy, but she's well enough to run to the door and run outside, screaming for help. She runs outside the door. Yeah. She's screaming for help, but like you said, very groggy. She must be standing just outside that door, kind of like, oh, 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 for a good minute, minute and a half on our screen. She did not kick Terrence that hard. I'm sorry. He'd already be out there after her. It just, it just have her run for a little bit and turn a corner at least so there's at least some plausibility. I mean, gosh, I don't see her. Where could she be? I don't know. Maybe I'll go through the only exit. <laughs> and therefore I will catch her immediately. And she, yeah. And for whatever reason, she, well, I can forgive her because she's groggy, but she runs and goes out a back or a side door instead of the front door. Oh, go out however you get out. That's fine. Just get get out. Yeah. Sure. But then don't just stop, turn around and go, oh, where am I? Yeah. What's going on? And again, I get that she's groggy, <laughs> but if she is to do this, then she's getting caught. <laughs> She's getting recaptured immediately. Instead, we see Hotch, Morgan, and Kale pull up in front of the studio. And I'm wondering what happened to the black town car, because I could have sworn they parked it in front of the studio. But this, they, Morgan and them pull up, and there's no black town car there. <laughs> okay, maybe they just didn't show them parking around the corner somewhere. But it just, it irritated me uh, as a continuity error. And on top of that... You you could you could make the argument that oh maybe he ran out the front door because he was kicked and didn't see which door she went out maybe he thought she ran out the front and went to the town car to get in the car and search the neighborhood but no it's not what happens no so anyway they hop out of the car and again Morgan is disappointed because the front door is a door that opens outward and it's already unlocked so he can't kick it in so they rush inside their guns are ready and. All of a sudden, it's just Morgan and Hotch. So I guess Kale decided to hang around outside. Okay, fine. Uh, Morgan and Hotch clear the various rooms in the studio. Hotch calls for Morgan. But meanwhile, Morgan has found the incriminating CDs. He meets up with Hotch in the main part of the studio. And uh, Hotch is saying it's clear that there was a struggle here. Someone left very recently. She's probably out in the neighborhood right now looking for help. And Morgan shows him real quickly the CDs that are clearly labeled Vicky, Naomi, Keisha. And Morgan says, their voices, those are his souvenirs. Which, again, this entire scene is written for us, the audience. And no one would talk this way. 
especially not Hotch and Morgan. We don't. We'd be like Hotch would have said, "He would go in that back room." We go. There was a struggle. Must have gone out the back. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. And Morgan were like, "Yeah, I found the souvenirs." <laughs> uh, we cut out to outside. I'm not clear on how close they are to the studio or if this is a little bit of a distance away. But- well, considering it's it's all NYPD. Uh, they must have gone miles. <laughs> yes, that is correct. Because yes, there there's a cop there who's having some kind of conversation with the lady of the evening. When all of a sudden, Allie comes from around behind a corner and she's mumbling at this point that she needs help. She needs help. And so the cop, who, as you point out, is NYPD. So I don't know how they're still in Mount Vernon, but okay. <laughs> Uh, the cop uh, goes over to her, asks her if she's okay, and she looks like she's about to pass out, and she's just like, where am I? So the cop thinks she must be on some drugs and starts to ask her what she took. All of a sudden, Wakeland runs up behind her, saying, Allie, Allie, oh, there you are. Oh, thank goodness. He thanks the cop, says this is his baby cousin. She... She was watching her. She snuck out and got wasted. Meanwhile, Allie is mumbling and, and Wakeman says, oh, I'm going to, you want me to tell your parents what you've done? You could have gotten yourself killed in this neighborhood. The officer asks Allie if she knows this man, but she can't answer because she's so drugged up. Uh, Wakeland. And therefore, he must release her. Into yes. Wakeland apologizes to the cop, starts to take Allie away. But all of a sudden, the other cops pull up. Even though it was just Morgan and Hotch and Kale before, there's now like five police cars <laughs> pulling up to the scene. And uh, <laughs> Including the ghost of Nate Ware. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Might have well. <laughs> it, it would have made sense to me. Uh, and they're they're getting out of the car, and yeah, there's like a, a dozen officers all of a sudden. I'm exaggerating, but there's a lot of cops pointing guns, and they're all hot to trot and ready to shoot AJ, uh, saying things like, ah, he's not going to let her go. He could be armed. So Morgan has to just shut them all shoot down. Him. Shoot him already. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Morgan has to put a stop to all that because we don't want them to kill the serial killer. <laughs> um, <laughs> because he's black so we don't want one of these incidents <sighs> we don't want to we don't want one of these incidents where police just assume that any random black man on the street is a criminal and shoot him dead except for the fact that this is exactly the person they're looking for they have his picture they have his name he's with the missing girl that we know is missing and we've just left the scene where clearly he attacked her yeah, we want to apprehend this guy, and if the guy's going to resist, we're going to shoot him. It's a completely justifiable thing, but you know what? It's okay. It's not just white cops, because one of these cops is black. So right. therefore, it's not an indictment of white people, and it's okay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, anyway, somehow... Morgan is the cop whisperer. <laughs> they all put down their guns <laughs> because they realize uh, it would be wrong to shoot him. And Morgan moves in. He lets 
uh, Allie go. Hotches manages to take her away. And Morgan arrests Wakeland without killing him. <laughs> yes. Yes, he does. <sighs> Might I also add, uh, completely unarmed individual. It's not like he was holding a gun, too. Terrence <laughs> is completely unarmed at this point. Nope. Ay, ay, ay. Nope. So, next, we cut to the funeral of Detective Nate Ware. And, uh, AJ, I'm going to ask you right now if this is going to count towards our funeral prediction. Absolutely. It is any funeral in which we attend because we knew the victim uh, not because we're surveilling some random person's uh, funeral. If we we're just using it because we're surveilling, no. This is in attendance because we knew the individual. Yes, we were we were at zero, and now within four weeks, we are at two, <laughs> both involving Morgan. Uh, I don't know. I don't think my prediction is going to hold if we go at this rate. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, you have your prediction is nine. We still need twelve weddings, but we've got two funerals. But again, at this pace, you're certainly not going to fall short. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, Morgan, it's after the funeral now. Morgan is standing over a gravesite. Prentice walks up. She asks him if he's all right. He says that he knew what it was like to grow up without a father. She's talking about uh, Ware's kids, and she says, well, their father died a hero. And Morgan says, so did mine. Doesn't make it any easier. And that is the original end of the episode. And at least that would have made sense to me. And, you know, it, this was about Morgan, this episode, and his relationship with, uh, you know, being a black man and in law enforcement and his, his battle with it. And, you know, for us to close on him saying, yeah, my dad was a policeman and died a hero and it doesn't make it any easier. That's at least a good place to end the episode, except they had to move the episode around and tack on another scene. Yep. Uh, so now we cut to the BAU jet flying home. Reed gives us a closing quote. The life of the dead is placed in the memory of the living. Cicero. Quick aside, AJ, have you ever seen the movie The Wiz? Yes. Yes, I have. So every time I hear the name Cicero, I think of Michael Jackson, whose, whose Scarecrow character had quotes in his head, and he would pull out the quotes and read them. And there were these crows that tormented him. And Michael read a beautiful Cicero quote and said, Cicero. And one of the crows said, Cicero, row, <laughs> row your boat. <laughs> And I think of that every time I hear Cicero. <laughs> That's fine. And all, all right. I have to say is, you know, Michael Jackson doing quotes does nothing for me. But if Nipsey Russell, the Tin Man, were going to be giving me quotes, they would rhyme and I would listen. <laughs> mm-hmm. I used to love me some Nipsey Russell. A man stood and... on a boat. The boat, <laughs> it did not Decided. float. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And all the young listeners out there can call us <laughs> old goats. And uh, yes. For those references. <laughs> anyway, that was my quick aside. Um, so we're on the plane and Prentice walks up, throws a book down in front of Morgan, says, oops, sorry. And uh, Morgan picks up the book and laughs. We assume it's a Kurt Vonnegut book. I couldn't zoom in enough to see what it was, but... Uh, 
Prentice found the book at the airport. She's like, can you believe it? I haven't read it in like uh, 12 years. Okay. And now, of course, I'm going to say they fly a private jet. They don't go to real airports. (laughs) There's no way she found this at the airport gift shop because, no, they went to probably Little Westchester Airport, which has like six planes at a time, privately runway and no, no. But go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> so, yeah, so she says, uh, Morgan tells her chapter three is when it starts to get good. And Princess says, okay, she'll let him know when she gets there. And I'm like, well, that's a pretty short flight from <laughs> New York to Virginia. You might not get to chapter three. I don't know. Well, she didn't say she'd tell him on the plane. She would just tell him. Okay, good point. <laughs> Fair. So... <laughs> Then Morgan looks over at Reed, who appears to be lost in thought. So he had asks Reed if he's all right. Reed says he's fine. And then you're right. Because they had to make this all of a sudden about Reed, this racial discrimination case. <laughs> <laughs> Reed says, you know what? Thanks for broadcasting. Something might be wrong. After he looks around and Morgan's like, talk to me. And whatever you say to me is incompetence. You know that. Reed says he has nothing to tell him. Morgan says, listen. What he went through, what Reed went through, no one expects him to rebound. Reed cuts him off. Look, I can still do my job. I'm not going to freak out. Morgan says, uh, don't you think I know that? And uh, after a moment of thinking, Reed says, well, it's the crime scene photos, the dead girls and the leaves. Morgan says, Reed, we've seen worse. And Reed says, I know we've seen worse, but for the first time, I know. I look at them and I, I know what they were thinking and I know what they were feeling like right before. Morgan says, that's called empathy, and it's a good thing. (laughs) Reed says, it's not a good thing. It's got him messed up. He doesn't know how to focus. He can't do his job as well. What do I do? And Morgan says, you use it. Let it make you a better profiler, a better person. Reed says, a better person. And he ponders. (laughs) And Morgan gives him an empathetic smile and the episode ends finally man what a muddled mess this was i i I can't i don't know if i'm sounding like too nitpicky about all the little things that we found as flaws in this particular episode but it just seemed flawed through and through they, they generally do a really good job of uh, at least giving you an insight as to why the unsubs do what they do. And, uh, you know, you're, we're going inside their minds, you know, the criminal minds, and, and learning about what makes them tick and how we from the outside can take those flaws and recognize similar flaws in ourselves and prevent us from going down the path they go on, blah, blah, blah. This one, I, we never really even begin to think what this unsub's doing it's it's just i'm ugly something about him being ugly yeah Yeah. (laughs) what and beautiful voices because we get so distracted by a uh the 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 race riot that's gonna be happening out yeah because you know the the three thousand black people who live in this town are gonna rise up against the thirty nine thousand white people just tomorrow that's gonna happen uh just I don't know if this rang a little bit truer in the context of what it aired, 
or like it, it may not have like in in 2021 this is so tonally off and wrong in every way like i don't know if back then it like oh yeah those i hadn't thought about that cuz in 2021 we've thought about this <laughs> yeah we spent all last Definitely. summer thinking about this aj it doesn't matter how crappy the episode is. They can still win or lose the episode on our <laughs> barometer. This is so, true. What do you think? Uh, I mean, they won. They won. Uh, despite everything. Despite Nate Ware getting shot and killed. The BAU won. Uh, police in general lost. I think there was not a damn good thing that the police did right. But I think sometimes you have to factor in the fact that the BAU, they may not be getting any help. <laughs> like, like, I can't blame them for the one girl dying while they were there because they weren't told about it until way too late. So, OK, yep. that's not your fault. They've heard about one girl, Allie, at the end. like, And they, they pretty much said clickety, clickety, clack, we're there. So, yeah, it's a win. It's not the greatest win. It probably was an overtime and, uh, you know, unforced uh, error of fumble on the those <laughs> part. Like, I don't know. Yeah, it, it's not a good episode. It, granted. Uh, but we'll give them a win. Yeah. Okay. Begrudgingly. Begrudgingly. <laughs> so, the other thing we like to do at the end of our recaps, AJ, is we have a short little quiz that is inspired by the episode we just watched. Uh, so why don't you take it over? Yes, we're going to do our little three-question quiz here. Uh, also pointing out they did not mention the title because Fear and Loathing was a stupid title for this episode. and the, just They did say fear a couple of times, but nothing, nothing beyond that. But anyway, question one. Uh, you, of course, recognized our unsub, uh, David Ramsey. Uh, as being Diggle throughout the Arrowverse uh, on, on multiple shows. Yes. He's even gone on to direct many uh, of the, uh, an episode on many of the uh, shows there, Supergirl and whatnot. But there's the whole CW of it all. But I want to know from you, one of David Ramsey's earliest roles came way back in 1996 when he played... Brent the Lifeguard in a movie which was based on what television show? A movie based on a television show from 1996. I just need for you to tell me the television show. I think it's too early for the 21 Jump Street movie. Way too early for that. If it was 1996. I've got to think back. I know there was a Dragnet movie. Give me a moment. I'm just going to try to try to suss it out in my head. But I think the Dragnet movie was late 80s. Maybe I think it was earlier than that. Diggle, diggle, diggle. Um, I was hoping if you were going to ask me a diggle question, I remembered him also fondly from a, well, not fondly, but he, he did a, a another Dexter appearance that I remember. Uh, it's, which is the only other thing I can think of him in. Uh, yes, he played the uh, boyfriend to Dexter's sister a little while. Yep. Huh? Yeah, but he was Anton. 
Well, Andor. I even remember the character. But that's because I've been paying attention to Dexter lately. Uh, because of the new... Anyway. Um, but I'm stalling because I'm trying to think of a TV show based movie from 1996. And what what was the name of the character you said again? Brent the Lifeguard. Brent the Lifeguard. I think it's too early for the Baywatch movie, too. Damn it. 1996 is what's really making this hard for me. Uh, I don't, I have no clue what I'm going to say. And I, this movie was much earlier too, but I'm just going to say it anyway. I'm going to say uh, the Beverly Hillbillies. Oh my goodness. That is not correct. However, uh, cause they had a cement pond. They didn't have water in the pond. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brent, the lifeguard was a character. In the very Brady sequel. So uh, this, of course, we were looking for the Brady Bunch. Yeah, I should have thought of that one. Because there's no way I would have no, thought of that. Not at all. Look, <laughs> uh, I didn't have a lot to go work with here. <laughs> yeah. I was just trying to think of every movie to film to movie, TV to move, movie, uh, but I couldn't. It, I couldn't come up with it. It's oh, all good. Well. All right. Question two. We're then, of course, going to move on from the unsub to our dearly departed man of law, Billy Brown, of course, our fine actor who played dead Detective Ware, uh, Nate, on uh, many, many episodes for the full run of uh, How to Get Away with Murder. He also... Mr. Billy Brown has appeared on many other television shows for multiple episode arcs. I'm going to give you the name of four television shows. Please tell me the one out of these four in which he did not appear in a multi-episode arc. So three he did, one he did not. Which one did he not? The shows are A. Dexter. B, (laughs) the following. C, Grey's Anatomy. D, Sons of Anarchy. Well, I wonder if I just blew this question in advance by mentioning the show that that Diggle, David Ramsey, was on. And if that's where you pulled the question from, then I may have spoiled your quiz. And I think that's what happened. I am going to say he was not on A. Dexter. You are going to say that he was not on A. Dexter. And I am going to tell you that he indeed was on A. Dexter. (laughs) Indeed, yes. I'm sorry to say... That uh, our our good friend. As I quickly look up the character name, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was on, on Dexter. He played a, 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 a detective for a little bit there uh, in one of the seasons. However, he did not ever appear on Grey's Anatomy, ah. which you would have thought in the Shonda world. Yeah, perhaps. Of course, he would have, 
Nay, nay, I say. I say nay, nay. So, uh, yeah. Sorry. I can't, I can't believe that show, by the way, is still on the air. <laughs> anyway. Yes, indeed. And, and still spinning off and all that good stuff. All right. It's, let's, it's let's, longer than ER now, right? Just curious. It's like 13, 14 seasons, something like that. Anyway, right. sorry. Let's get to the nitty gritty. The best question. Yeah. My favorite question. What everyone's looking forward yes. to, AJ. The question that is part quiz, part preview. Uh, what is going to be the plot of the next episode, which we will cover here on Flonius Pundits? Criminal Minds, Season 2, Episode 17. That's right, folks. Episode 17 of Season 2. The name of this episode is Distress. Distress. Is it A... While the team tries to figure out what the pattern is in a series of Houston homicides, Reed's continued erratic behavior draws attention. Is it B? While the team tries to figure out what the pattern is in a series of Kentucky killings, Hutch's new supervisor draws attention. Is it C? While the team tries to figure out what the pattern is in a series of Miami murders, Gideon's unexplained absence draws attention. Or is it D? Say it with me, folks. While the team tries to figure out what the pattern is in a series of San Francisco shootings at sea, a confession from Prentice draws attention. Oh... Back to our alliterative locations slash crimes. I really feel like we need to follow up on Reed and his escalating situation. But I think, again, that you are assuming that's what I'm going to go with. I'm going to say... I'm going to take a left at Albuquerque. (laughs) Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, that would be a left at Albuquerque, but then way, <laughs> way north. And I'm going to go to San Francisco and say choice D, the shooting in San Francisco at sea. And, and what happens? Prentice. Uh, a confession from Prentice draws attention. And we get a, get a confession from Prentice that draws attention. Well, of course, when I hear distress, I think SOS. I think save our ship. And I think shooting at sea. So, of course, the correct answer is we're going to Houston for a series of homicides. <sighs> and yes, indeed, we're going to follow up on this erratic behavior from Reed because no better person, saying better person, when you're clutching uh, drugs in a bathroom just a few minutes before is not the end of the story. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, I, every, every time I assume it's going to be the curve, you throw the fastball. Every time you zig, I zag. And that's just what you thought I was going to do. Just when you think you know all the answers, somebody changes the questions. Ah. Folks, that's the episode this week. Thank you so much for joining us. We, as always, hope you had a great time. Please be sure to subscribe to Rate and Review Our Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. 
And please feel free to spread the word to your friends and let them know about our show. You can also write to us at feloniouspundits at gmail.com or follow our Twitter, which basically just announces when we have a new episode, but maybe one day we'll put something interesting on there. That's at podcast underscore pundits. For AJ Max, this is Kintad's Fensgard saying goodbye and keep profiling. Wheels up. Can't we all just get a Rodney King?